Thank you. Welcome. The title remains the same. <laughs> um, it comes from T.S. Eliot, those of you who are familiar with the four quartets, The Dry Salvages. Um, he writes in this passage of our perennial and foolish need to understand the signs of the times and what they mean for our future. To explore the womb or tomb or dreams, all these are usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press and will always be, some of them especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgware Road. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. Ibn Arabi, whose writings never leave the realm of the timeless, was nevertheless born into a religion which reveals itself according to a linear progression in time. Other religions and orders have emphasized cyclical time, or the reappearance in time of the same eternal realities. But the story of the people of the book, the people of the Torah, the Gospels and the Quran, has a beginning, a middle and an end. The cultures, worldview and imaginative presence of the people born into these religions are imbued with this sense of the linear progression of time or the playing out of a great story. Many of the masterpieces of Western art tell this story. Milton and Dante in verse, Chartres Cathedral in stone and glass. Michelangelo has it laid out on the walls and ceiling of the Sistine Chapel where the whole event is depicted from the first moment God divided light from darkness through the Old Testament prophets to the life of Christ and the inevitable conclusion with the Last Judgment. Ibn Arabi himself has a specific role in time as the seal of the Mohammedan saints. His appearance at a point in time relative to what came before and what comes after has significance. So what is it that the unfolding of this story tells us of who we are now and to what we are invited at this moment? At the intersection of the timelessness with time, the past is not behind and the future is not ahead. All exists in the moment. What happened to other people in another time and another place happens to us here and now. The past is not dead, says William Faulkner. It is not even past. So the study of history can become the study of ourselves. I'd like to begin, if you will excuse the presumption, with a speculative glance over several thousand, thousand years of history in a place closely connected with Ibn Arabi, Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, a place in which the teachings of Ibn Arabi took root and brought forth seed, and also, not coincidentally, a place of intersection of many civilizations and religions, whose traces are still clearly seen there. 
where the East meets the West. This speculation is to draw out just one of an infinity of ways of seeing the movement through time as a progression of more and more expansive revelations or invitations to completion and to see in some way how this could inform us of the era we live in and what that means for us. The earliest known settled community yet excavated is in the centre of Anatolia at Chateauhuyuk. We know almost nothing about the people of this place, nor their religion, but they left powerful ritual objects now collected in the museum in Ankara, which indicate that when man first settled, he created a holy place, a temple an area especially designated as sacred space set apart from the ordinary affairs of life. Successive civilizations moved through this area and left their own traces of sacred spaces until Alexander, tutored by Aristotle, foretold his destiny by the Oracle of Ammon, forged the historically important link between the West and the East provided the cities he conquered submitted to his rule, he tended to leave their temples intact and often offered sacrifices to their gods. Alexander opened up the way for the Roman Empire, which followed in his footsteps, assuming many of the sacred spaces and temples which had gone through successive religious identities. Uh, those of you who have seen the film Turning will be familiar with the idea that the ancient earth mothers of the Chetelhuyuk transformed themselves into Hittite deities, then into the Artemisia of the Greeks and Diana of the Romans. Into this empire 2,000 years ago, the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth spread rapidly and a profound change was brought about in the place. The era of the temple, the space set aside as holy and administered by priests who mediated between man and the gods, gave way to the Christian ecclesia, or church, the place of gathering of the community. The locus of revelation of the divine moved from the temple into the community, or wherever two or three are gathered in my name. It was at this time, of course, that the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people began their worship in the synagogue, also a gathering place of the community, without a priest. Walking now around the great temple, temple of Didyme, south of Ephesus, which was the location of the famous oracle of Apollo in Greek and Roman times, built again on the site of an even earlier temple, you cannot help but experience the magnitude and significance of that place, and at the same time the sense that nothing of the spirit which manifested there now remains. When, after the Roman Empire had become Christian, the emperor known as Julian the Apostate tried to revive the ancient gods of Rome, he sent a delegate to consult the oracle at Didyme and was given the message Apollo no longer inhabits these halls. He has retreated into the bowels of the earth. 
So the locus of the revelation spread into the earth and through the community. It also spread from the chosen people of Israel to all who embraced Christ's teachings and it spread rapidly through a vast empire which had been made ready to receive it. St. Paul, in his epistle to the Galatians, the people of present-day Ankara, wrote that the covenant which God had made with Abraham and his descendants a thousand years earlier was extended by the prophethood of Jesus to all who followed him. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. More than a millennium later, after a series of invasions, the new religion of Islam came to this land, to whose prophet Muhammad God said, I have made the whole earth a mosque for you. The physical location for worship became the correctly oriented, prostrated form of the believer. It was to Konya in central Turkey, of course, that the two great poles of Islamic sainthood, Ibn Arabi and Rumi, came in the 13th century, not quite meeting in time, establishing an education in the unity of existence, which was to be followed by other great Anatolian saints throughout the centuries, and which is finding so many students today. Both of these men were travellers, of course, Ibn Arabi from the far west of the then Muslim world, Rumi from the east. Part of what moved them across the globe were the conditions of the time, warfare, invasions, political intrigue, etc. Their interior knowledge expressed itself through a large range of culture, sensibility and taste, which was their experience. A very broad place had been made ready for them, prepared to receive what it was they brought. God knows best where to place his message, it says in the Quran. And he who manifests himself in a form does so only according to the degree of receptivity of that form. From the chapter of Elias in the Pursuit. The subsequent reception during the Ottoman Empire of the teachings of Ibn Arabi by those called the Melami is discussed by Victoria Rowe Holbrook in Journal 9 of the Society's Proceedings. She describes the intellectual climate of the time as representing a tension between the Near Eastern learned traditions of Arabic and Greek philosophy and the more eclectic, freewheeling Turkmen Sufism. Again, this was a large place for a large teaching. So we find ourselves now at the beginning of the 21st century, emerging from one of the most destructive and disturbing periods in human history, where old orders were overturned and new ideologies were found to be deadly. What is being prepared, being prepared now? What does this era manifest 
of the single unique reality. The rapid span through a particular aspect of human history can show that the clashing of armies and destruction of civilizations are intertwined with what prepares the place for successively expansive revelations. We cannot say that they cause the preparation, but we cannot say that they separate, they are separate from it either. The Roman Empire must have seemed overpowering and indestructible to most of those living in the first century AD, and yet the message of the poor carpenter from Nazareth, so apparently antithetical to the aims of the empire, found its place there and spread through it rapidly, like water in a dry sponge. At the start of the 21st century, a new empire is gaining dominance, not this time created by armies or of a single nationality, but a cultural and marketing empire expressed in international global capitalism and popular Western culture. We see this seemingly oppressive and banal force rapidly destroying traditional cultures and unique sensibilities throughout the world, colonizing the appetites and imaginations of most of what it touches. But it does not seem far-fetched to suggest that this empire, whatever its own intentions, is laying the ground on which certain ideas are rapidly communicating themselves, just as the roads of the Roman Empire allowed the spread of the ideas of Christ at the beginning of the first Christian millennium. Amongst the chaos, clamour and disorder of the last hundred years, certain ideas have emerged, it's not quite clear from where, and become established, seldom in the actions of those in power, but in the convictions of an increasingly large range of people. The century which witnessed two world wars also witnessed in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights or in the work of Gandhi or Martin Luther King and others in the social movements of the 60s. The establishment of the idea that the individual human being has a value based purely and essentially on their humanity not their status amongst others, and that this essential humanity is worthy of profound respect. That the conditions of birth, of nationality, religion, race, class, gender, etc. should not be allowed to impede a human being reaching their potential has become a common belief in some quarters. The idea, of course, is not new to the world, but it has penetrated through different societies to an extent possibly not seen before, and is held by many people now as a core spiritual value, something which transcends politics and religion. For instance, many of those who participated in the civil rights movement of the 60s describe the experience more as a spiritual awakening than a political or social action, and that it was something which seemed to be happening to them, rather than something which they brought about. 
Know this to be definitely like this, opens the commentary on the chapter of Jonah and the Pasus. That God created this emergence of humankind according to completion in his image, so that the qualities of completion of this totality be manifest in him. If this emergence of humankind has been created for completion, and if there is to come about a universal perspective, then it is required as the first step that at least in thought it is recognized that the value of another human being and oneself is that which is essential without condition, that our value does not lie in our attributes because the attributes do not belong to us. They are lent or assumed or brought about through the conditions of time and place. The deep common bond we may be graced to experience is, in fact, a single reality in multiple manifestations. This is a simple but profound revelation which has the power to change everything. Another idea running rapidly through this new world, which can appear to be in complete contradiction to the sense of unity between peoples, is that the differences in human beings deserve recognition and respect. On the political front, those not formally represented in prevailing culture, government or education, racial minorities, women, gays, the disabled, the list goes on, have demanded to be recognized, not assimilated, In its lowest form, this descends to the tyranny of political correctness which so infuriates right-wing columnists and broadcasters. But something very important is being expressed here which is at the heart of a nascent universal perspective. On the one hand, if the real value of a human being rests only in their essential humanity, not their birth, nationality, race, creed, class, talents, achievements, then how they appear is, in essence, always suitable. That is, there is no requirement to become something other than what one is, nothing to transform oneself into, no attributes to acquire. The only requirement is to become properly and completely who it is one is meant to be. On the other hand, these differences in humans, which come about through their unique experiences, cultures, religions, histories, talents, dispositions, are intelligences. They are aptitudes for the perception of the one reality. When they are allowed to be free from relative values and conditioned response, and are seen to be unique tastes of the one reality, They become themselves an education and an invitation to a more universal truth. From the chapter of Jonah in the Pursuit One and the same thing may appear differently to the various observers of it. Such is the self-manifestation of God 
Either one may say that God manifests himself like that, or that the cosmos, being looked at and into, is like God in his self-manifestation. It is various in the eye of the beholder, according to the makeup of the beholder. Or it is that the makeup of the beholder is various because of the variety of the manifestation. Human beings all over the world are resisting the orders which have been imposed on them and demanding the right to express who it is they are. The tension caused between the desire to recognize the essential humanity common to all and the desire to respect and give value to difference can only be resolved from the point of view of unity. So long as the different attributes are seen to belong to different entities, conflict and ranking one above the other will be inevitable. When they can be perceived as attributes of a single entity to which there are no exclusive rights, except its own right to be itself, then the tension and conflict falls away. There is a profound education for all of us in this. This place, this planet at the beginning of the new millennium is providing the conditions for a vastly expanded perception. Our common history, the progression of revelations appearing over time, witnessed in our communities, lives on in us and gives us our sensibilities. It either becomes our means of understanding or it becomes what conditions us to a limited perception. We are so thrown up against each other now. This era is requiring of us that we move beyond the limitations simply in order to survive with one another. And it is not only in the interaction of people that our perceptions are expanded. Much of the art of the 20th century in the West has been dedicated to cutting ties to the past so that we are forced to use our senses in new, fresh ways without the interference of the previously applied intellect. The Cubist paintings of Picasso or the abstract expressionism of Rothko demanded a new way of perceiving form and colour unattached to what it is these symbolized. The high mode of the music of Charlie Parker or John Coltrane, which demands to be heard fresh in this moment. The language of Samuel Beckett, the architecture of Le Corbusier. In every major art form, literature, dance, drama, a new education has been offered to expand the possibilities of perception. James Morris told us at the symposium here in Berkeley two years ago of Ibn Arabi's description in the Futuhat of the people of fragrances, the special saints in Andalusia, to whom all divine knowledge was conveyed through the sense of smell. This is such an evocative image of the pure receptacle where the senses are free of conditioned response and intellectual interference and through which real knowledge can be received. 
or the senses can be maintained in full health, as it says in the prayer for this morning that John just read. The bewildering changes, the speed with which old orders are overturned, the suddenness of the necessity to accommodate the new, can either be welcomed and embraced or resisted and resented, but nothing will halt the requirement to respond. If we can look back over several millennia of the history which informed us and see the expansion of the platform of the revelation, we can see ourselves now at a time and in a place where the platform has expanded exponentially. The invitation to completeness can no longer be contained in the order laid out by the temple, the tribe, the community, or the followers of the law of a prophet. As always, what is needed to understand the world around us is what is needed to understand ourselves and vice versa. The era is his name. This time and this place is demanding in even the most overt ways that in order to understand what is going on we must remove from ourselves limited belief and conditioned response. This is not easy. An education is needed in this to perceive what is essential and what is peripheral. What is ancient and abiding, as Ibn Arabi says, and what is recent and perishing. An education from one order to another order will not be sufficient. This is the beginning of the education which is offered by such as Ibn Arabi, who starts from the point of unity and never leaves it. He gives help from what is real to what is known to be real in oneself. An education from the interior reality of man to the interior reality of man without intermediary. We have no way, of course, of knowing what the future will bring, whether the new world order at the dawn of the 21st century will bring harmony, destruction, apathy, or combinations of all of the above. We may sense that the invitation to completeness is being made to a much broader platform but we cannot know how it will be responded to, except in ourselves. Such a one as Ibn Arabi delivers an invitation to direct knowledge from the most ancient place. In this way, there are no real states or stations to be brought through. There is no platform of understanding to be brought about. There are no conditions to be changed or attributes to be attained. All that is required is the proper response, the request to be informed directly from the most interior place. Rab Hibli Istadadi Kamlin says the prayer of Ibn Arabi. Lord, grant me as a gift the perfect aptitude to receive from the most holy effusion. Thank you.